The stories featured in Greeking Out are original adaptations of classic Greek myths. This week's story features missing fathers, too much partying, duplicitous weaving, and withholding information for dramatic purposes. Greeking Out, the greatest stories in history were told in Greek mythology. Greeking Out, gods and heroes, amazing feats. Listen and you'll see it's Oracle, question for you. What's the most famous story in all of ancient Greece? I assume you are referring to the Odyssey, the famous Greek epic, and the subject of this season of Greeking Out. I am indeed. We are officially back for a new season, and this time we're talking all about the incredible journey of Odysseus, one of the major heroes of Greek mythology. The Odyssey was written by the Greek poet Homer, somewhere around the 8th century B.C.E. Right, and like the story of the Trojan War, it may be better to think of the story as one that everybody knew already. In fact, it's likely this story was composed to be recited from memory by ancient performers. It's a story so famous in Western society that over the years, Odysseus and his journey have become sort of an archetype for the classic hero's journey. Others like J.R.R. Tolkien, James Joyce, and even Margaret Atwood were all inspired by Homer and used several of this story's elements in their own work. And if you've been a longtime listener of the show, you probably remember Odysseus from previous episodes. Like we said, he's one of the biggest heroes in Greek mythology. But unlike Achilles or Perseus or Hercules... Heracles. Right. Unlike those guys, Odysseus wasn't a warrior known for his strength or speed or huge muscles. He was considered to be a hero because he was smart. Like, really smart. His entire reputation was based on being crafty, clever, and cunning. If you had a problem you couldn't solve, you needed Odysseus. And sure, sometimes his tactics weren't exactly fair or kind, but they did manage to get the job done. The best-known example of Odysseus's cleverness is how he found a way to breach the city of Troy by creating the infamous Trojan horse. We talk about it in our episode, One Horse to Rule Them All. And while Odysseus probably thought his adventure was over after the Trojan War came to an end, his journey was really just beginning. But oddly enough, today's episode isn't really about Odysseus. Bait and switch is a common form of trickery where one thing is presented as bait and then it is switched for something else. Well, we've actually talked a lot about Odysseus's time in the war, but while he was there, other people were living their lives as well, namely his wife Penelope and their son Telemachus. You see, just like with today's military families, when someone goes to war, it's not just the person who's gone that's affected, it's the whole family that sacrifices. And Odysseus had been gone for a while. The Trojan War itself took 10 years. And after the war, everyone expected Odysseus to be the first one back. I mean, he didn't even want to go in the first place, but then a whole year passed. And then another. Eventually, ten more years went by and Odysseus still wasn't home. According to modern scholars, the trip from Troy back to Ithaca should have only been 565 nautical miles, a long distance, but 
not one that should take a decade. Exactly. And to make matters even worse, other kings and soldiers had already returned home, but Odysseus was still nowhere to be found. Now, Penelope had been holding down the fort in Ithaca this entire time, and during her tenure, she had proven herself to be a kind and just queen. But unfortunately, Penelope couldn't rule all by herself forever. People believed that Ithaca needed a king to guide the country to success. This is a factually inaccurate belief. Throughout history, women have proven themselves to be strong and capable leaders. Hatshepsut, Catherine the Great, and Queen Elizabeth II are all prime examples of successful female leaders. That is quite true, and Penelope was an excellent queen even without a husband, but the people of Ithaca felt otherwise. If Odysseus wasn't coming back, and at this point everybody had begun to believe that Odysseus was not, in fact, coming back, then Penelope needed to find a new husband to serve as king. And as a result, over a hundred men started competing for the chance to marry Penelope and become king of Ithaca. Homer writes that Penelope had 108 suitors vying for her hand in marriage. And it's important to remember that these suitors weren't exactly lining up with flowers and chocolates. After all, they didn't really care about Penelope. They cared about power and being on the throne. Penelope could have been a fancy chair and they would still have been fighting over her. Now, for her part, Penelope wasn't interested in any of these suitors. She knew Odysseus was still alive and she knew that he would return to her one day. Her job, as she saw it, was to be patient and keep Ithaca and its people safe. She had absolutely no intention of remarrying. But unfortunately, these suitors couldn't take a hint. And without Odysseus there to keep the men in line, things got a little out of control. All 108 suitors were at the palace constantly, just hoping to get a little one-on-one -on -one time with Penelope. It was like one of those reality TV dating shows where everybody was vying for one person's attention. And to make matters worse, they were constantly consuming. They ate or drank everything in the palace. They fought each other. They partied. They left such a mess that the palace was constantly in shambles. And they weren't going to stop until there was a king of Ithaca again. With so many power-hungry suitors around, things were starting to get dangerous. Even Telemachus, Odysseus and Penelope's son, couldn't keep them under control. At this point, Telemachus was in his 20s. Odysseus left when he was young, but Telemachus still loved his father. Kind of like me with my mother and Ethernet cables. You're right, okay, but yes, poor Telemachus was certainly dealing with a lot. The young prince was angry that these suitors wouldn't leave his mother alone. He was worried about the state of his kingdom. He was confused about whether his father was dead or alive. And he was starting to think that his mother was delusional for refusing to do anything but remain true to Odysseus. Mom, things are getting out of control, he said to Penelope. These suitors are taking over everything. There's going to be a rebellion soon. Don't you think you should just, you know, pick somebody to marry? Your father is coming back, Telemachus. We must have faith. Okay, but in the meantime, these guys keep wrestling in the hallway and eating all the food in the kingdom. We gotta do something. Don't worry. I have a plan. 
Even though Penelope still believed that Odysseus was coming back, she knew that Telemachus was right. She had to do something to appease the men. So the next day, she made an announcement. Dearest suitors, I've accepted that Odysseus is not coming back. The time has come for me to choose a new husband. But unfortunately, I am still in mourning and need a clear head. I will choose a partner as soon as I finish weaving this burial shroud. A burial shroud is a garment used to wrap around a deceased person. This was for Odysseus's father, who died waiting for his son to come home from the war. Ooh, ouch. Right in the feels, Oracle. Your feels are not a real place, and therefore I cannot be right in them. Yeah, what I meant was that you were tugging on my heartstrings. Hearts do not have strings. You have pointed out something that is emotionally devastating and it has caused me metaphorical pain. Well, if you put it like that, I am sorry for your fictional pain. Thank you. (laughs) So, Penelope's burial shroud maneuver had temporarily appeased the suitors. She planned to take a long time to finish that burial shroud. I mean, that excuse could buy her what? A couple of months to figure out how to deal with the suitors? It took her years to finish the shroud. Years? Three years. Okay, that better be the best burial shroud in the history of the world. But to her credit, That kind of time was exactly what Penelope had in mind. You see, Penelope wasn't just the brainless, grief-stricken queen that everybody thought she was. She was married to Odysseus, after all. She had a few tricks up her sleeve as well. So while Penelope spent her days hunched over the burial shroud, painstakingly weaving every thread into place, she spent her evenings secretly unraveling the garment. She would watch her progress fall away each night with a smile on her face. She had absolutely no intention of remarrying. She knew she just needed to buy herself some time until her husband came home. Now, at this point, you might be wondering, okay, so where exactly is Odysseus? Ten years have passed since the end of the Trojan War, and he still isn't home? Weren't these supposed to be the best sailors of all time? I mean, what's taking them so long? Spoiler alert. They were definitely not the best sailors of all time. And we are not going to answer those other questions this episode. Well, that's right, and... We are withholding information for dramatic purposes. Right, yeah, yeah, this is a time-honored tradition here at Creaking Out. But while Telemachus and Penelope were at their wit's end with the suitors, Athena was watching and hatching a plan. Odysseus was one of her favorite humans, and she was worried about his family while he was missing. Telemachus was too young and inexperienced to take over for his father, and he had no idea how to handle this challenging situation. She couldn't help Odysseus without angering her fellow gods, but Telemachus was fair game. Rather than appear to Telemachus in her full goddess glory, she decided to disguise herself as Mentor, an old friend of Odysseus and a village elder. And so, when she arrived in Ithaca, Athena was no longer a beautiful goddess. Instead, she was an old man with a limp and a crooked nose. When Telemachus saw her approaching, he embraced her immediately, fully convinced that she was an old friend of his father's. Mentor, where have you been? I haven't seen you in ages. 
Telemachus was eager to have some guidance for his troubles. Come on, he said. Let me tell you about this whole suitor situation. I mean, this thing is totally out of control. In modern English, the word mentor is defined as an experienced or trusted advisor. This word comes from the Odyssey and Athena's chosen disguise. Exactly. And Telemachus desperately needed a mentor. His palace was invaded by a bunch of brawny dingleberries trying to impress his mother. The kingdom was on the verge of collapse. Telemachus, the old man said, something needs to be done. The kingdom can't continue like this. Well, what can I do? Telemachus asked. My mother doesn't want to remarry, and no one will let her rule on her own. She most certainly should not remarry, Athena slash mentor insisted. I believe your father is still alive. But you need to take control of this kingdom until he gets back. What should I do? Call an assembly. It's time for these suitors to realize who they are dealing with. You are the son of the king of Ithaca. They can't get away with this disrespect any longer. An assembly was defined as a meeting of the people. But in ancient Greece, it excluded women. It was where men of the kingdom gathered and spoke freely about the governing of the city. Sometimes it resulted in a vote. Right, and while the assemblies used to happen all the time in Ithaca under Odysseus's rule, there hadn't been one since he'd been gone. You know, I'm feeling a commercial break right now. I think this is a good place to take a moment, we'll get a break, we'll come back with more Greeking Out in just a little bit. Okay, thanks for that. And now we're back with more Greeking Out. News about the assembly spread throughout the kingdom. Everyone was intrigued. Who did Telemachus think he was? Why was he calling a meeting? Did he have some sort of announcement to make? When the morning of the assembly finally arrived, Telemachus was so nervous he could hardly speak. His hands shook and his voice wavered. This was his first time addressing the kingdom and he wasn't sure he had even earned the right to do that. I mean, he was just a young man after all. He felt he had done nothing to garner respect. Athena, disguised again as mentor, gave him an encouraging smile. She was sure the suitors would not stop unless they had been publicly shamed into behaving better. Telemachus cleared his throat and began to speak. But before he could utter a single word, he was interrupted by an elder in the front row. It was Aegyptius, a wise old man who was known across the kingdom for his wisdom and sage advice. Before we begin, he said in a quiet but confident voice, I'd like to point out that this is the first assembly since Odysseus has left. This is a conversation that needs to be had to save our kingdom, and I applaud Telemachus for being the one to call it. He turned to Telemachus and smiled. You were just a baby when your father left, but you have grown into a bright young man capable of great leadership. Let us hear what you have to say. Telemachus smiled to himself. At least he had one fan in the room. <clears throat> Citizens of Ithaca, he began. Thank you for coming here today. I, I know we are all upset and discouraged by my father's 20-year absence, but if you are one of the many suitors vying for my mother's attention, you are not helping your case by trashing the palace and eating everything in sight. I ask you to please stop. We believe that my father is still alive. 
Odysseus could return home at any second. What would he think if he found so many of you circling his kingdom like vultures? I ask you to do the right thing and go home. Leave my mother alone. Let us figure out how to proceed without your interference. Silence fell over the hall. Athena, still dressed like the old man mentor, bit back her smile. Telemachus had done well. The crowd was considering his words. For the first time, it felt like a true kingdom instead of a bunch of men vying for power. Well, at least that was until Antinous spoke up. Antinous was one of the most persistent suitors interested in marrying Penelope and securing the throne. Well, that's a lovely speech, boy, but the fact of the matter is your mother has been leading us on for years. She likes the attention. She wants a new husband. She just doesn't want to have to choose. <laughs> I think she likes having us all fawn over her every day. Telemachus felt his blood begin to boil as Antinous continued. Your mother seems incapable of making a decision. She should be sent back to her father and let him choose who her new husband should be. The disrespect. Telemachus took a deep breath and began his response. This is the kind of disrespect and insolence that will rip our kingdom apart. You have no idea how much pain and suffering she's going through right now. I have no idea. <laughs> You're the one who doesn't know his own mother. Antinous interrupted with a laugh. <laughs> she claims to be weaving a burial shroud and says that once it's finished, she will pick a husband. Yet, she goes back and unravels her work every night and thinks we'll never figure it out. At this point, the shroud will never be finished. She's tricked us all. Once again, a stunned silence fell over the room. Telemachus had no idea how Antinous found out about the burial shroud, but he had to admit, it was not a good look. One of the servants in the palace had spied on Penelope and reported back to Antinous. Penelope is just as wily as Odysseus was. Don't blame us for causing havoc in Ithaca. That honor belongs to your mother, the queen of lies. Telemachus was enraged. You and the rest of the suitors are putting our kingdom in danger. We need order and calm, not a bunch of fools jockeying for power. When my father returns, he will see who is loyal to him, and he will make the rest of you pay. I ask you again to stand down. Suddenly, at that very moment, two majestic eagles appeared out of nowhere and soared across the sky. Eagles are the symbol of Zeus and not an omen to be ignored. A solemn silence fell over the crowd as they watched the eagles ride the wind and dip down to where Telemachus was making his speech. They encircled the assembly a few times before flying away, wings dappled in the sunlight. It is a sign from Zeus, whispered Aegyptius, the old man. The crowd began to murmur again, impressed that Telemachus' words had been backed by the king of the gods. But not everyone was convinced. Antinous and some of the other suitors were still enraged at Telemachus and Penelope. Athena could see that the men meant to take action against the young prince soon. And after the assembly was over, she warned Telemachus that he needed to leave immediately. Telemachus, I have deceived you. 
I am not who you think I am, she said as she transformed into her goddess form. Telemachus fell to his knees in awe as Athena explained to him that she knew his father and had helped him at Troy, and also that her bright idea of having Telemachus confront the suitors in front of everyone may be kind of sort of backfired. You are in danger here, she said. The suitors will rebel and come after you as Odysseus's rightful heir. You must leave. Sail to Pylos and speak to wise King Nestor. Maybe he will know where Odysseus is. Now, of course, Athena knew exactly where Odysseus was, and she certainly knew that he wasn't in Pylos. Odysseus was in sort of a cosmic timeout at that point, but Athena was determined to free him, and it wasn't something that Telemachus could help with. No, it would be much better to send him on his own quest to learn about his father. It would keep him safe from the suitors and provide Telemachus with some much-needed independence. Telemachus was reluctant to leave his mother alone in Ithaca, but he was desperate for answers. And so, Telemachus and his crew set sail that very night. They left under the cover of darkness so that no one would realize they had gone. Unfortunately, the meeting with King Nestor was not very useful. Yeah, it was kind of another strikeout for Athena's ideas. Not that Athena was wrong, per se. Athena is never wrong. It's just that... Do you want this podcast to be cursed? This is how you get Cursed. Right, 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 right. What, 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 I, what I mean to say is that Athena's reasoning was far beyond our mortal understanding, and so Telemachus was promptly sent on to Sparta, probably just as Athena had originally intended. And there, in Sparta, Telemachus was greeted happily by King Menelaus and the lovely Queen Helen, who held his face in her hands and told him how much he looked just like his father. But of course, that was something Telemachus couldn't see because... He barely remembered what his father looked like. There were no photographs at this time, and so Telemachus only had his memories of his father. But here he is meeting, for the first time, two people who knew his father very well. Exactly! And Helen and Menelaus had a ton of Odysseus stories to share. Like the time Odysseus stole the Palladium out from under the nose of the Trojan army. Or that time he made everybody build this giant hollow horse. It was crazy! And King Menelaus had gotten some information that might be of major interest to Telemachus. How he came upon this information is a long story that we'll tell in another episode. There was this primordial sea being and a wrestling match and prophecies. And anyway, in that adventure, Menelaus was told what had become of clever Odysseus. We are apparently still withholding this information for dramatic purposes. That's right. Tune in next week to hear all about where Odysseus has been cooling his heels all this time because that's all the story we have for today. Breaking out. Thanks for listening. Next week we'll hear all about Odysseus's extended 20-year beach trip. Listen and you'll see it's National Geographic Kids Greeking Out is written by Kenny Curtis and Jillian Hughes and hosted by Kenny Curtis with Tori Kerr as the Oracle of Wi-Fi, audio production and sound design by Scotty Beam, and our theme song was composed by Perry Grip. Dr. Diane Klein is our subject matter expert and Emily Everhart is our producer.